Two days before Christmas in 2015, 39-year-old Connie DeBate was starting her day in Ellington, Connecticut. Disciplined in her fitness, she drove to the nearby YMCA to take a cycling class. But when she got there, she learned that the class had been canceled, so she drove home. But when she got there, she was met with a man and a gun, and it would be up to her Fitbit to ultimately reveal who that man was. This is the story of Connie DeBate and the Fitbit murder. Welcome back to Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly. Wicky, wicky, wicky. And I'm your co-host, Austin. He's back. I'm back. Are you guys so excited? Like Michael Jordan. Uh-huh. He's been on one since I started trying to record this episode, and um, at the very end, we recorded a little rap that um, he claims he wrote. Are you going to claim it? Because if somebody else figures out that you did not, in fact, write this, you're I'll re-record it at the end, and we'll take a sample. We'll <laughs> think. I already recorded it, so I'm just going to put it at the very end. No, I'll go um, ahead and re-record it because I can do better. Okay. <laughs> you don't make the rules. Okay. Well, it's actually my podcast. You do make it's the rules. It's not daddy mystery. It's Kelly you mystery. You do Mama make mystery. the rules. I'm playing, honey. <laughs> All right. I didn't mean it, everybody. People are going to be like, he's, I don't even know what you he said. He sounds like he's abusive. Honestly, I wasn't even listening. I said, you don't make the rules. Oh. But it's your podcast, so you do make the rules. I actually do. Yeah, I get it. Um, Let's right. get into the show, wait, Kelly. Wait, wait, We have to talk about the live show we have coming up. Oh. You guys, we sold out our first live show, and I am so proud and grateful and just blown away by the reaction. When I first started planning a live show, which I have never done one of these, where I actually am in front of people live, okay? It's not a virtual live show. And I've never done one of these. So when I planned the event, I initially planned it for a smaller venue thinking nobody was going to show up. And then that sold out to our Patreons in less than 24 hours. So we had to bump it up to a venue about three times the size to accommodate everyone. And that sold out in like 20 and days. those tickets sold out. And I just cannot believe it. I am so thankful. If you are one of the listeners listening to this, it is going to be there on the 27th. I cannot wait to meet you. If I already know you, obviously I'm going to have to give you a big hug and just thank you for supporting this, this weird random habit and hobby of mine. Not hobby. habit. <laughs> well, I'm crazy proud of Kelly and I'm very grateful for everybody for supporting us and the show because this is super cool. Yeah. To to put on a thing that has 170 tickets or whatever it is and it sells out is like awesome. And Kelly is super concerned with making sure everybody gets the best experience ever. So our profit we generate on this show, everybody is zero dollars. Zero. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's been dumped back in. But hey, it's gonna be a fun night. It's gonna, it's gonna be, be great experience. It's gonna be great. So I'm proud of you. Thank you. Great job. Thank you. And I can't wait to take this on the road someday and go to some different locations. I know that there are some listeners who really want us to travel, and that is something I'll definitely consider. So anyway, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Cool. What you got for for us, girl? Ready for the show? Yep. Okay. The Fitbit murder. This is crazy. Mm -hmm. I just heard the intro just like you guys, and I'm clueless, Mm -hmm. like always. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that reminds me. I got a message from a girl named Bella Munoz. Munoz? I'm not sure if I'm 
pronouncing that right, but she emailed me saying, hey, Kelly and Austin, this isn't a request, but I just wanted you both to know that despite the fact that I may be inebriated right now, I absolutely love your podcast and your relationship interplay. You both are hilarious and incredibly charming and remind me so much of me and my own partner. Thank you for working so hard and giving my partner, and then in parentheses, a crime clueless Austin, the perfect intro into the community I adore. Can't get enough of you as a team, Bella. Thank you so much, Bella. How cool is that? That's really nice, Bella. You I'm know, glad I... that when you get inebriated, you think to tell us nice things. <laughs> yes. That's very cool. You're I, a cool drunk person. <laughs> I definitely love it. Um, and I didn't even think about the fact that maybe this is how some wives do introduce crime to their husbands. Because I know that there are a lot of husbands that listen to the show who relate to you. Mm-hmm. And I, I never thought about that whenever I introduced you to the show. So I'm just glad that it's reaching that type of audience. We're just full of gratitude right now. Yeah. Okay. Are you ready for today's show? Finally? Get into it, baby. Truly. Let's go. Okay. So Connie Margotta was born on July 31st of 1976 in Rockville, Connecticut. She grew up in Vernon and then in Ellington with her parents, Kenneth and Cindy, and her siblings, Marlise, Leslie, and Keith. After Connie graduated in 1995 from Ellington High School, she went to the University of Connecticut, where she graduated in 1999. After graduation, she became a pharmaceutical sales rep for Reckitt Benkiser. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. To know Connie was to love her. She was kind and very generous. She often volunteered and served as the vice president at one point of the Ellington Ambulance Corps. And everyone who came in contact with her just knew how generous and giving and kind she was. In the early 2000s, she met a man named Richard DeBate, and it was an instant attraction, and everyone who saw them together knew that it was the real deal. They got married in 2003 and had two boys, RJ and Connor, settling into a beautiful home in Ellington. The colonial-style home with light yellow siding sat on a little more than three acres. The front porch stretched along the entire front of the house, and the windows were perfectly symmetrical and uniform. Despite being somewhat farther apart than a typical neighborhood, their neighbors were their best friends, and they spent a lot of time together. Peggy and Darlene loved Connie and Rick. They saw Rick treating Connie like a queen, doting on her constantly and often wishing their own husbands would take notes from Rick. On Wednesday, December 23rd of 2015, at around 8 a.m., Rick took RJ and Connor to the bus stop for school. Connie was getting ready to leave for the gym, and after watching the boys get on the bus, Rick returned home to get ready for work. Shortly after he left the house, he realized he left his laptop at home, so he turned around to go get it. And on his way back, he got an alert on his phone that the home alarm system was going off. With some alarm systems, when an alarm is triggered, they'll automatically send out an officer to the scene just to make sure that everything is okay, even if it's a false alarm. With ours, I guess we do have that option to like just let them know it's a false alarm. You don't have to come out. Get like 20 seconds to, to select. Yeah, but I guess in this case, it's just precautionary. This is what they do. It's a standard. So when Rick got back to the house, he checked the rooms to make sure that everything was okay. And when he entered the master bedroom, he was shocked to find a large man dressed in camouflage going through their closet. No way. That would be creepy as hell. Mm -hmm. 
According to the arrest affidavit, when an EMT arrived on the scene, he walked up to the house and noticed that the storm door was closed, but the inner front door was open. So he yelled, but nobody answered. So he entered the home and noticed a smoky haze throughout the house. As he made his way through the house, he noticed little droplets of blood leading from an open doorway that led to a basement. Then he saw a trail or smear of blood that led into the kitchen. When he entered the kitchen, there was Rick, lying on the floor on his right side, tied to a folding metal chair, zip-tied to it, actually. When the EMT asked Rick if he could hear him, he replied through his moans, they're still in the house. So the EMT radioed for backup. Oh, shit. If I'm that e- I just got the goosebumps. If I'm that EMT, I'm out. Well, then you would not be a very good EMT, and That's I'm why I'm not an not. EMT. My goodness. Brave. I'm telling you. I would like, just not me. Run. It's not okay, for so me. I, I got a gun on me. I'm either going to fire it. I'm going to freeze. I'm going to do some shit. <laughs> okay. I have to tell you this funny. It's not funny. Okay. That's not the right word. Let me delete Don't that. delete it. Just keep going. <laughs> People know it's not funny. Okay, don't Kelly doesn't mean me. this is funny. It's not funny. But this story, if you knew who told me this story, you might think it was funny because the person who told me this story is my dear friend, Nancy. And Nancy used to be a uh, forensic, like fingerprint, uh, Latin fingerprint analyst, I guess, something like that. So when she was coming up in her field, she had to help uh, medical examiners when there was like a call for a dead body, right? Mm -hmm. So she was describing me this one night where her and this other like medical examiner or police officer, I'm not sure, but it was a female. They had to go out to this scene where apparently a homeless man hung, hanged himself in a tree and they had to go get him down. And so tell me about this. So they met out there with this male cop and the male was like holding the flashlight and kind of guiding the way. And then Nancy and her friend had to stand at the bottom of the tree to catch the man once um, somebody else went and caught or cut the rope, right, to release him. Well, since he had passed away earlier in the day, rigor mortis had set in. And so when they cut the rope... He came down and landed on his feet and just kind of stood there before falling over. And the male cop, it scared him so bad, he ran off and left them no way. Nancy and her friend there to like take care of the scene on them by themselves. Holy shit. Which she did because she's a badass. That's a pretty wild story. Isn't that nuts? I, I just... I You're just even picturing me. It. Well, and if you knew Nancy, you would know that she's like this sweet, sweet lady. Like you would never know that she's seen some really crazy shit. Anyway, okay. So the EMT radioed for backup. That's where we left off in the story. Yes, before I interrupted. A few minutes later, Sergeant uh, Patrick Sweeney arrived on the scene, and when he found Rick, he asked what happened, and Rick told him that his wife had been shot by an intruder dressed in camouflage and that she was in the basement. So as the EMTs provided care to Rick, Sergeant Sweeney and another officer went downstairs to look for Connie. When they got downstairs, they found paper that appeared to be burnt, explaining the smoky haze upstairs. And they also found a hammer and a box cutter with what appeared to be blood on it. So as Sergeant Sweeney continued to clear the basement and check the rooms, he entered a utility room where he found a Ruger 357 Magnum revolver on the floor. And near the revolver, they found Connie lying on the floor against the wall, and she was dead. 
See, I know you're not supposed to obviously touch the gun, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're searching a house and you find a gun and you think somebody might be in there, wouldn't it be tough to not pick up the gun? Yeah, that would be tough if you didn't already go in with one. Yeah. yeah. Or even if you had one, like you don't want somebody else to pop out around a corner, mm. pick up the gun and shoot you. That's true. I didn't even think of that. Like I can't imagine walking in a room and being like a gun. Ooh, better leave a that there. A dead person. Better not touch that gun. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Like mm, that'd be scary stuff. Scary. So once an officer secured the crime scene, they were able to focus on saving Rick. At first, it was unclear what all of his injuries were. There was blood on his head, his pants, and his shirt. So he was lying on his right side, kind of on his belly. His right arm was zip-tied to the folding chair, and the chair was laying on top of his back. There were also ties around his neck and both of his legs. They immediately cut the zip tie off his neck so that he could breathe easier, and they asked him what happened. He told them that he was driving when he received an alert on his phone that the alarm at home was going off. When he got home at about 10.30 in the morning, he went inside and he heard a noise from upstairs but assumed it was from one of their cats. So he went upstairs, he found the camouflaged man in his closet, and then got into a scuffle. At this point, he said Connie had arrived home early from the gym, which we later learned was because the cycling class she was going to take was canceled. When she walked in, Rick was already tied to the folding chair, and he screamed at her to run, but the intruder shot her right in front of him. Then the assailant got a blowtorch and started using it to torture and burn Rick, as well as stab him with that box cutter. What the hell? At this point in the um, affidavit in the case, it's not clear how or when the intruder left, but apparently he did because Rick said he was able to maneuver himself up the stairs into the kitchen to retrieve his phone and call 911. So as he was being treated by EMS, an officer arrived with a canine named Rocky. Rick's wallet was found outside in the yard, so Rocky picked up on that and then tracked back towards the house. And the goal was to get Rocky to pick up on a scent that led away from the house, showing where the intruder would have gone. But unfortunately, he didn't pick anything up. Oh, and I've listened to enough of these to know where this could be going. He just kept going back to the house, and at one point, um, Rick was loaded up into the ambulance, and Rocky tried getting into the ambulance with him. No way. Man, I'm thinking it's this crazy, scary sequence of events, and it is, but it's this hassle. So Rick was taken to the hospital to be treated for his injuries, and while he was there, another canine was brought in named Axel, and then a third named Jesse. Axel and Jesse attempted to pick up on a scent outside, but they weren't able to locate one either, suggesting that the intruder did not leave the property. At the hospital, detectives met with Rick again in an attempt to get a better description of the intruder. Rick said that the man was about six feet tall, a stocky, obese build with a deep voice that resembled Vin Diesel. He also elaborated on the in- on the incident with more details, including how he was able to burn the intruder's mask with the blowtorch that he somehow managed to grab while he was zip-tied to the chair, and that when the intruder's mask caught fire, the intruder dropped the torch, and I realized that this is a discrepancy, right? Because how could he have dropped, how could the intruder have dropped the torch if Rick was Mm -hmm. holding it to burn the intruder's face, right? But this is exactly how it's written in the affidavit. 
the intruder put his hands to his face and ran out of the house. And then let this guy just live, right? We're supposed to believe that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. After that, he, as in Rick, crawled up the stairs while he was still tied to that chair. Detectives started asking more questions to further nail down the timeline of events and to make it very chronologically clear, okay? I'm going to list out his version of events according to what he told detectives in this particular interview. Rick said that he woke up at 5.30 a.m. Connie woke up at 7.15 a.m. and got dressed in her workout clothes. Rick said he dropped the kids off at the bus stop and then left for work at 8.20 a.m. He said that he observed Connie in her car looking for her spinning shoes for her spin class. If you've ever taken like a Peloton ride or a spin class, there are specific shoes for this class. So that does make sense. He did not see her leave as he drove off to work. About five minutes after leaving, so that would be about 8.25 a.m., Rick realized he left his laptop at home. So he pulled over to text his boss that he would be a little late And at the same time, he received an alert from the alarm system at home. Rick said he spent about five minutes texting his boss and then deleting the alarm messages from his phone. He then headed back towards the house at about 8.30 a.m. And since he was only five minutes away, he would have arrived back home at 8.35 a.m. So once they had the timeline nailed down, detectives began asking Rick about his family dynamics. He was asked about his marriage, and he said that things were pretty good, but that Connie had been pretty angry lately and taking stuff out on the family. He also noted that she seemed depressed lately, but other than that, things were fine. The detective asked if anything else would be revealed during their investigation, anything he might want to be truthful about. Rick then took a deep breath and replied, yes and no. He said nobody else knew, but that Connie was well aware that he was expecting a baby with another woman. This, this is just getting all over the place here. But rest assured, Connie was okay with it. I'm sure. And she was taking out a lot of anger on the family, but for God knows why. (laughs) Well, and she, she was apparently supportive because she really wanted another baby, but due to her age, she would have been put at risk. She's only 39, which I know is like, you know, creeping into what they refer to medically as a geriatric pregnancy, which makes me feel like just ancient. I had a baby at like 34. So yikes, knocking on the door of that. But anyway, I guess because of that, she would have been put at risk. And so... Um, she was excited that this new baby was going to be coming did, into the world. Did she know that he was knocking some chick up, or was that a surprise and she was just so supportive of that also? Well, Rick said that they did talk about him donating sperm, but that the process would be too lengthy and expensive. So he did some untraditional things by getting another woman pregnant. And this woman was a friend of his from high school. At the time, she was single, but she wanted to have a baby. So the plan was for them to have this baby with this woman and then co-parent the baby. Do we have any... Please tell me we have some text messages or something of her being super cool with him banging this side chick from the past. Unfortunately, those were not made available during the investigation. I bet. (laughs) Guy's a dirtbag. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Well, Rick also added that in a way, this was all Connie's idea. 
This seems so similar to the Scott and Lacey Peterson case where he claimed, do you remember that case? Yes. Okay. Where he claimed that Lacey knew all about his affair with Amber Fry and was actually totally okay with it despite being eight months pregnant. I don't believe any of these stories that are on this show where there was a murder (laughs) and there was an affair going on that they were okay with it. I don't believe any of them. None of them. And you shouldn't. And I'm not going to believe any in the future either. (laughs) And you shouldn't because only a complete moron would tell a detective, yeah, my wife knew and she was cool with it. My wife that got murdered. Immediately jail. Yeah. Come on. No need to investigate. You're done. You're done. I'm done. You're done. And we're done. Rick even doubled down when detectives asked if it upset Connie that he impregnated another woman by having intercourse with her, being very specific. And he said, quote, she was amazing. I never expected it to go that way. Hmm. End quote. Just a dream come true. So this is a quote from the affidavit affidavit because I just felt like there was no better way for me to write it. So here's what Rick said during his interview. Rick said she was due in February of 2016. When asked if the conception was a surprise, Rick initially stated, no, we actually talked. Rick said that the other woman and Connie do not talk. He stated there was a lot about this that the other woman was okay with, but not, and that there were things she did not know. Rick said they were going to wait until it all happened and just see where it goes. When asked if the pregnancy was accidental, Rick stated, quote, there was cheating going on in the beginning on both sides, end quote. And then when asked again if the pregnancy was unexpected, Rick then said, quote, the pregnancy was unexpected. The situation was something that we were talking about, end quote. So which is it? Was it Connie's idea for you to get another woman pregnant or was it an accident? Or were you both cheating and then became okay with it? Or was one cheating or was it an open, like, what are we talking about here? Yeah. So at this point in the interview, they're still at the hospital, but Rick was actually cleared to be released. And during this entire interview, they reminded him that he was not under arrest and that he was free to leave at any time, but he just continued talking. Detectives pried more into the relationship with the with this other woman, and he admitted that he had been romantically involved with her for about seven years and that the other woman thought that he was going to divorce Connie. So during the interview, the scene back at the house was being processed, and the detective let Rick know that there were some inconsistencies popping up. And Rick immediately said, quote, I did not shoot Connie. I'm going to stick with my truth. I'm not going to lie to you. I know you have to drill me. It's your job, end quote. And when he asked why he didn't react to the intruder pointing a gun at Connie's head, he said, quote, I froze. I froze like hell, end quote. When asked how he knew she was dead, he replied that he heard EMTs say that she was DOA, but that wouldn't explain why he then crawled up to the kitchen without ever checking on her. And he said, quote, I yelled and yelled and yelled, but couldn't do anything to save her, end quote. But he has never mentioned that he actually went up to her to see if she was alive or not. He Mm -hmm. just yelled for her. And since she didn't respond, we're just going to assume she's... I don't know, asleep? I don't know. Mm. So let's talk for a moment about Rick's injuries. It's alarming that while Connie was shot twice... Once Rick a- has a paper cut. 
Sorry. I'm sorry. That was rude. Go ahead. Ben. No, it's, it's literally accurate. Only two of his cuts required stitches, one needing one stitch and the other needing two stitches. He had two small parallel lacerations on his right thigh, a burn to his lower left calf, three small parallel lacerations on his left thigh, a small laceration to his left chest area near his armpit, and then a number of small little lacerations on his head. There was also a small laceration to the tip of his left middle finger, and the majority of these were treated with Band-Aids. And it was also noted that, quote, a person using either his left or right hand holding a utility knife with that hand would be able to cause similarly parallel lacerations on their own legs and chest if they were to use the same hand to self-inflict all of the injuries, end quote. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this reminds me of Lululemon where, you know, it's one of your top five episodes where one of the girls was severely, viciously beaten and killed and the other girl only had superficial injuries. And Mm -hmm. if you know, you know, but if you don't know, you need to just go listen to that episode because it is wild. That's a wild episode. I picture like you don't even have to interview this guy. Like, okay, woman gets killed. Dogs don't pick up on anybody leaving. Man walks out covered in Band-Aids. <laughs> we got it. Like, problem solved. Yeah. Like, it seems pretty simple. Mm-hmm. At one point during their initial interviews with Rick, the detectives were surprised that Rick claimed the intruder had a large knife that he was threatening him with, and he described the knife as a long knife with a handle and jagged edges, but none of his injuries or lacerations could have been caused by a knife like that. And this whole thing, like we, I walked in on a guy who broke in our house and was going through our stuff and he tied me up and killed my wife and caught himself on fire and left. Mm -hmm. Like, well, and you know, he, why would he torture you and then just shoot your wife? Yeah. And yeah, none of it makes, none of it makes sense. We know. Despite claiming that this was a burglary gone wrong, the house was relatively undisturbed as we would expect. The office and dining rooms were untouched. His computer was still open and on his desk. His wallet was found in the yard, but nothing was missing from it. And inside the house, there were drops of blood leading from the basement to the kitchen. But interestingly, the drops became smears right as you would enter the kitchen, indicating that he walked up from the basement, up the stairs, down the hallway, and once he approached the entryway to the kitchen, then he started crawling, leaving the blood smears on the floor. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. Yeah. Like the blood, the blood splatter experts and stuff, that stuff's wild. Cause to me, it seems so niche, mm-hmm. but it's clearly very relevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they were also able to determine that he was walking because the most severe cut he had was on his finger. And that's what would have been causing the blood droplets, the blood dripping from his finger as mm-hmm. he walked. He also told detectives that he used his right hand to use the torch on the intruder's face after the intruder tied his left hand to the chair. But when he was, when he said he was found by Connie, he said his right hand was tied to the chair. Now I understand that this seems like really small, but if you're not, if you're just telling the truth, you shouldn't have to, you shouldn't have to think about it, make little mistakes like that. Mm Mm-hmm. So Rick also told detectives that Connie was aware of this new baby on the way with the mistress 
However, the mistress told detectives that the weekend prior to the murder, Rick and Connie went to Vermont to work on the divorce and to talk about how they were going to manage the upcoming holidays. Rick told his mistress that he wasn't going to tell Connie about the baby until after Christmas. So again, which is it? Did Connie know or did she not know? Your story keeps changing. Mm -hmm. Now let's dive into the timeline and the discrepancies within the timeline. Remember earlier, Rick claimed he got home right around 835. And during his initial uh, version of events, he said it was around 1030. And that's a two-hour gap. But in this version, he's saying that he got home right around 835 and that Connie was supposed to be on her way to the YMCA for that cycling class. But the class was canceled, so she came back home. Well, officers went to that YMCA to review the surveillance footage. They observed Connie speaking with one of the employees at the front desk, and then she left and got back into her car at 8.53 a.m., but she didn't actually leave the parking lot until 9.08 a.m. The YMCA is about five miles from their house, and it takes about seven minutes to get home. Their garage door sensor indicated that it opened and closed at 9.01 and then opened again at 9.23, so I believe that he was home at around 9.01, and she didn't get home until about 9.23. Interestingly, after running forensics on Connie's phone, they found that she was active on Facebook and that she shared two videos to her, her page, uh, one at 9.40 and another at 9.45, and the last message that she sent to a friend was at 9.46 a.m., now, remember, he said he got home at 8.35 and that the, he immediately found the man in yeah. his closet and then was being tortured and then Connie got home. And, and he said, run. Yeah. Well, and, apparently she got home and was home for 20-some minutes hanging out. Yeah. And then, you know, scrolling Facebook and sending memes and messages to her friends. So um, that was at 9.46 that she sent a message to her friend well, Rick's electronics showed that he was scrolling through Facebook from 826 to 842 looking at tattoo ideas. And then he read an article about a Star Wars movie. Then he logged back into Facebook at 859, the exact same time he was disarming the house alarm. At 917, he was back on Facebook. And then at 918, right before Connie got home, he searched for the YMCA group exercise schedule, likely to get an idea of when she would be back or if her class was canceled. At 9.20 and again at 9.22, he was back on Facebook, checking out their pages on ESPN and the New York Giants. Now, I found this to also be interesting. 12 days after the murder, Rick canceled his LiveWatch residential alarm system contract. Now, why would you do that if you weren't the one who murdered your wife and you were the only witness who survived, wouldn't you be terrified that this intruder would come back to finish the job? It's also worth noting that they rarely actually used that alarm. The only other time they armed their system in the month of December was when they went to New Hampshire for a couple of days. I, what you just said floors me because I thought this dude was busted guilty within like 24 hours. You just said 12 days later. So he's out hanging out doing his thing while they're investigating. Yeah. Oh, and that part gets worse. So um, in one of the texts that Rick sent to his mistress, he said that if Connie ever found out about their affair, she would flip her shit and, quote, eviscerate him in court if she found out. 
So that to me says his motive is obviously financial. Mm -hmm. Connie also had a life insurance policy worth over $400,000 and he had the same policy, but he had stopped making payments on it. So hers was the only one that was still active. And when he called days after the murder to cash it out, he was informed that there was a hold on the policy because he was still a person of interest. Oh, man. When detectives examined their financial records, they found that Rick had a personal Capital One card that he kept hidden from Connie and had all of the statements sent to a secret P.O. box. The month after Connie died, he began having the statements forwarded to his house. He would use this card to buy his mistress flowers, and they also spent $1,253.75 at a gentleman's club in Tallinn, Connecticut, as well as making multiple payments to a Motel 6 in Vernon, Connecticut. Unreal. Despite trying to hide his extravagant spending habits, Connie was actually aware of how irresponsible he was with money. The day before the murder, Connie texted Rick saying, quote, I have been on the phone with Comcast for the last two hours. They are saying our bill was 302 a month instead of 149 because you added the sports channels. They are not paying me back. So I am out over fucking $1,200 for cable for hours. This and you again lied to me and I am again cleaning up your fucking mess, end quote. So I know it's kind of jumbled because I'm not sure what she meant when she said that she paid $1,200 for cable for hours, this, and you again. I don't know. Mm -hmm. You're reading reading it verbatim, yeah. Yeah. I just wanted everyone else to know that since they don't see the message, obviously. Um, So then he tried to call her, but she didn't answer and sent him a text saying, I cannot fucking pick up because I am still trying to clean up this shit. So she's obviously upset. Man. And he said, I never added sports channels. And she said, great day off and Merry fucking Christmas. And he said, it will be a very Merry Christmas. Just give me a call when you're ready. I'm sure in his mind, knowing what he's about to do, he's like, yeah, Merry Christmas to me. Like, I can just Mm -hmm. finally be free and go be the piece of shit that I just want to be deep down. Mm -hmm. So on December 4th, just weeks before the murder, Connie created a new note on her iPhone, and the note was titled, Why I Want a Divorce, and it listed the following. He takes money from a lot of accounts that don't belong to him, says he's sorry, but takes no responsibility for it. He lets the kids watch TV for hours, does not keep any of his promises to me in regards to getting a list together for one of their son's medical Um, appointments, having questions prepared for appointments at the doctor's or at school meetings. He forgets everything. He is not sympathetic. When my dad was diagnosed, he just let me cry without helping. He lies to people and makes them think we have a great sex life and that we are this super couple. He does not take any responsibility for why I am angry. He has to be the center of attention all the time. And then there was a bunch of other things too. Mm -hmm. Their marriage was rocky for a while then. Right. But it's interesting, though, how the neighbors never sensed that anything was wrong and told their husbands to take notes from this guy because he was such a super husband. I forgot you said that in the beginning. Yeah, that part was true. That's wild, yeah. Now, let's talk about this Fitbit. So despite all of this evidence, there was really one thing that sealed the deal for the prosecutors, and that was Connie's Fitbit. So... I know that everything else seems so cut and dry, um, but I do think that this really added the more scientific 
proof that the prosecution would have needed to present their case because this Fitbit, for those of you who don't know, um, Fitbits are a device that you actually wear on your body to track your workouts or your health stats throughout the day. So Connie was wearing one on her waistband on the day that she was killed. So what I'm saying is there's no way really to refute this. It was on her body. The data pulled from it is scientifically factual. Anyone could argue or any crummy attorney could argue that their client you know, could have had someone else texting from their phone. There's no way to prove it was him and, you know, this and that. But this is one thing that's really impossible to refute. Now, the activity that was recorded by the Fitbit correlates with a lot of what we already know when she left for the YMCA, when she got to the YMCA, and then when she came home from the YMCA. It also tracked her movement throughout the house, showing periods of rest and then periods of movement. And the last movement registered by the Fitbit was at 10.05 a.m. Also damning were the logins on Rick's computer. When he said he was pulled over on the side of the road, emailing his boss and responding to the alarm notifications, his IP address was registering to the Wi-Fi at his house because he never left the house. The story of him leaving and having to pull over and then turn around because he forgot his laptop, it was all a lie. So just to recap, there was never any forced entry. Rick was having an affair and got this girl pregnant unbeknownst to his wife. Rick was in dire financial straits. No evidence supports the claim that Rick ever left the house. In fact, the evidence proves he never did. And it took two years for detectives to build a sufficient case against Rick. And he wasn't arrested until two years later in 2017. But he was also allowed out on bail while he awaited his trial, which didn't start until 2020 due to COVID delays. Now, the trial lasted five weeks. And with all of the evidence against him, it didn't take a jury long to find him guilty of tampering with evidence, making false statements, and murdering his wife, Connie. Three hours was all it took for the 12-person jury to find him guilty, and he was sentenced to 65 years in prison, so he will die in prison. The fact that he ran around for a couple years plus, Mm -hmm. and then it took him three hours is insane. Right. I think it just was so cut and dry. It's so black and white to everyone else. Everyone else sees and knows he's guilty. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I can see why that's a really frustrating part of the process. But these days with, I feel like even just the linguistics of being on a jury when they, you know, say that you have to find a verdict based on, you know, no reasonable doubt whatsoever. It's basically like Casey Anthony's case, you know, can they prove it without a a reasonable degree of doubt? Mm -hmm. Um, That to me worries me because we've seen juries take that and... To an extreme. To such an extreme that they're blind to common sense. Mm -hmm. But this kind of restores our faith in that. However, I think what I meant to say is that I feel like that explains why it takes so long for a prosecution to build a case because they want to make sure that they have absolutely every single piece of evidence they can get. Right. It's crazy also to think the cell phone stuff is really interesting to me on all these episodes. When you talk about they pulled the cell phone and they could see he was on ESPN article and all this. It's just wild to think how casual he went about his morning, which I guess, yeah, what else would you do if you're getting ready to murder somebody here in a couple hours? You're probably not just going to be sitting there on pins and needles. You're going to try to keep your mind off it, I guess. I don't know. I've never thought about it. But <laughs> it's like to think like, okay, she she just walked in. I'll probably murder her here in 30 minutes or so. 
wonder if the Giants are picking up Saquon Barkley for next year. I'll check check the article real fast. Like, that's just weird to me. Like, yeah, I would think if I'm getting ready to do something extreme, I wouldn't be able to think about other shit. But he's just like, ah, they waved Saquon Barkley. Dang it. <laughs> I know. I, I can't even imagine, like, being in that mindset. Yeah. I really can't. I was nervous to go do a singing audition. Nervous. I mean, like, anxious, so nervous. Like your mind's just on that. And that was for a singing audition, yeah. <laughs> not to kill your spouse. Yeah. Yeah, it's wild. But it's also wild to me after all these years and all of the technological advances, people are still doubting the technology behind cell phones and Wi-Fi. Like, don't you know you can't lie about that shit? It's going, they're going to find out. Like, yes. And then this dude, he thinks, he didn't even think past like leaving the house. He opened the front door and threw his wallet out in the yard and gave himself some paper cuts and then (laughs) called the police. Like, are you shitting me? You couldn't even think it through further than that? Like I picture this dude, here's what I picture. I picture this dude walking up to his front door, opening it, Throwing his wallet out and being like, all right, go call the cops. (laughs) What are you doing? It's so dumb. It just amazes me that people can be this dumb. And this was obviously something that he was probably planning on doing. So how could you plan to do this and not have a better plan? Your planned version sucked. Imagine what his unplanned version would have been. Good night. I don't know. But, you know, I... All of this to say, I know we get a little bit lighthearted sometimes when we poke fun at the criminals. I don't want to take away how devastating this was for For Connie and her family and her two sons because they ultimately lost both parents in this ordeal. And this kid that was born that will never have their dad in their life. It's just shitty all around. For sure. Absolutely. Crazy. Well, good job, Kelly, on this case. Thank you. Mama. Um, Hold on. Are we going to, we're going to debut your rap next. Okay. Listen, let's do the mama mystery out. And then after that, I'll tell you a little story about it. Okay. Mama mystery out. Bye. Okay. Tell me. (laughs) Run the music. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So I am re-recording this like I wanted to in the beginning because Kelly totally believed me that I wrote this. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where this came from. It's some stupid thing from when I was younger and it was stuck in my head and it just is. Okay. And it's inappropriate. So if you're a snowflake, if you're sensitive, don't listen. And if you have a kid in the car, probably turn it off. Definitely don't listen. And by the way, I only thought that you definitely wrote it because you were so ornery in high school. And this seems like something you would write. And when I say a snowflake, we're not like, oh my God. Like people know, just go. (laughs) I'm a gangster. I'm a straight up G. The gangster life is the life for me. Shooting people by day, selling drugs at night. Being a gangster is hella tight. I walk around with a stark erection. I gave your mom a yeast infection. I'm a gangster. Grr, I'm mad. I'm a gangster. My rhymes are bad. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't know where it came from. Okay, hold on. I took three mental notes. <laughs> three mental notes. I literally had to, like, use my fingers to remember how many notes I have. This is, this is, um, these are examples as to how I know you're not gangster, Okay. You enunciate gangster. <laughs> That's the point. It's the point. Just That's forget not, the other two. No. What's the other no, two? The other two. What was the if second If people one? are listening this far, they must really like us. Because <laughs> if you're still listening to this, this is just stupidity. What was the second one? 
Okay, the second one was that you used finger guns. When <laughs> yeah, you I did. Said that you were killing people by day. And then what was the third one? Can you finish the rap for me? What was the end of it? Being a gangster is hella tight. I walk around with a stark erection. <laughs> I gave your mom a yeast infection. That's so bad. I'm a gangster. Grr, I'm mad. Oh, grr, I'm that's gangster. it. That's it. That's the one. The growl. You growled. That's how I know you're not a good uh, gangster. So. Well, we all knew I wasn't a gangster already. <laughs> Mama misery out. Son of a buck. So on December 4th, just weeks before the Murdy... Murdy? Murdy girl. 